I saw the price of them, Blu-ray box sets and bloody computer exchange the other day. Jesus Christ. It depends on what you want, but well, like the, paid for them now. It, the cheapest one's about 160. It's the same with Doctor Who books as well. The minute they go to the print, then they whack the prices up. It's funny, Richie was looking for a copy of that script Doctor book, the Andrew Cartmel one, and he couldn't get it for any cheaper than about 80 quid. Jesus. Well, I've got a copy here I could lend him, but he got himself sorted out, so... Yeah, you've got a copy that you could lend on, but you couldn't afford the rental fees. Yeah. So that's choice, huh? <laughs> I'm a real fan. If you're not paying 20 quid an hour for it, you're not a real fan. Not a real Doctor Who fan. Unless you were there in the 90s. <laughs> Unless you've got the entire script tattooed on your back, you're not a real fan. <laughs> for all the episodes. Crying at the page of your Doctor Who magazine in 1996. <laughs> if you haven't been masturbated at Liz Sladen's grave, you're not a real fan. <laughs> oh my god I hope you're right back to stones once you were done Don't you think she looks cremated? It's lost a lot of weight, a lot easier to look about now <laughs> Jesus Get that to the back of the van, no bother Oh no No, no, no I think that's one for the Christmas tape Possibly <laughs> To be buried in a time capsule 60 feet <laughs> under the ground <laughs> <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the corner of Doctor Who fandom that tonight puts on trial Fraser Hines' first experience with a fishing ever world during his time in the show, and the record shows it certainly wasn't to be his last. It's the Polis Box, the podcast that puts Doctor Who in the dock. I'm Lee. I'm Dave, and I'll, and I'll say my name while Cameron finishes cringing at the last joke. <laughs> uh, I'm Cameron. Uh, yeah, you know I promised before we started recording that it could only go uphill. I lied. Um, it couldn't get much worse than the conversation <laughs> around about 10 minutes ago. The point where I have to look up at the corner of the screen and go, are we seriously recording this? <laughs> Please tell me this won't end up in the final. Well, I can't make any promises. And then, yeah, I was going to say, then you have to trust Lee for it not to make the final, and then you're thinking, nah, it's going to be in the final. It's going to be in the final. Oh, okay then, uh, this episode, we are going to be putting the Underwater Menace on trial. Another frickin' telly snap. (laughs) (laughs) Just in case you couldn't get enough of still images, we're doing it all again. Yep. (laughs) That is my second note for the first part of this. I've read nice short opening credits. That's my first note then. Telly snaps. Bollocks. Because <laughs> that's kind of how it feels. Oh, okay, before we get into the what I mean, shall we cover what happened last time? Probably better. Okay. Polis Box 44, we put the Space Pirates on trial. Dave, you were prosecuting that. Yep, that's what I do. I prosecute things. Cameron, you were there for defending. I was indeed. Let's then find out how the listeners voted on that one. So, Polis Box episode 44 of the Space Pirates, we asked you if it was guilty or not guilty of crimes against Doctor Who, and here's how you voted. Guilty, 56%. Not guilty, 44%. Dave wins that one, so you get to pick from the envelopes of justice later on, Dave. Excellent. 
And Cameron, you'll get to do the coin toss to decide while Dave prosecutes or defends what we draw. I'll be tossing at the end of this episode, yes. <laughs> Frantically, over Liz Sliden's grave. <laughs> you had to bring that back, didn't you? you <laughs> it's going to be in the cold open. Oh, no, no. Oh, jeez, oh. I said yes to this. <laughs> and the contract is now in a locked container 60 miles under the ground yeah. yep it's in Atlantis <laughs> nice segue shall we get into it I'll be better let's go then nothing in Z World can stop us from going back to 1967 the rock and roll years it's time to find out if tonight's subject is the stuff of dreams or is just destined to leave us feeling gutted as we put the underwater menace on trial once again, I shall go and get the fishmonger to prepare the fish. To think that after so long, the great day is at hand. We shall surprise the whole of mankind. Yes, a very great surprise. Perhaps the greatest ever. Our course is plain. We must attack Zaroff. He has gone mad and is bent on destroying the whole world. Only a short one in which to stop him. Even supposing you succeeded, you know what will happen, don't you? When the water will be converted into superheated steam, the pressure will grow and crack the crust of the earth. Destroy all life, maybe even blow the planet apart. Yes, and I shall have redeemed my promise to lift Atlantis from the sea. Lift it to the sky. It will be magnificent. Bang, 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 bang. Like so. One small question. Why do you want to blow up the world? Why? You, a scientist, ask me why? The achievement, my dear doctor. The destruction of the world. The scientist's dream of supreme power. 70% of the world's surface is under the oceans. You are looking at our food-producing areas. Without it, we couldn't survive. I think it's splendid. All those people working under the sea to feed the others. But listen, how do they breathe? We give them plastic gills. That surprises you, doesn't it? Oh, it's breathtaking. Now, I'm glad you're taking it like this. Some people get most upset when they find they're to have the operation. Operation? Well, of course. We couldn't send you out there without it. You drown. You're not turning me into a fish. Nothing in the world can stop me now. Eating fish. The Underwater Menace was written by Jeffrey Orm, directed by Julia Smith and produced by Ennis Lloyd. It starred Patrick Troughton as The Doctor, Michael Craze as Ben, Alec Wills as Polly and Fraser Hines as Jamie, with Joseph First as Zaroff, Colin Jabons as Damon, Noel Johnson as King Thouse, Tom Watson as Rebo, Peter Stevens as Lolam and Catherine Howe as Ara. It was broadcast between the 14th of January and the 4th of February 1967. And the viewing figures were 8.3 million for part 1, 7.5 million for part 2, 7.1 million for part 3, and 7 million for part 4. Dave, a nice wee change for you, you're going to be defending this one. Yeah, I am. Which is a nice change. I can't remember the last one I defended. And I'm so glad I got a telesnap for it. 
Cameron, the Elbit 4, you'll be sticking the boot into the underwater menace. I'll be kicking a boot into Troughton. <gasps> Before we crack on, shall we I'll go to I'll be kicking a boot into Polly. <laughs> You're not making this any better for yourself, you. I know, I'm just trying to dig a big hole. <laughs> what are you trying to say about Polly? <laughs> Okay, before we crack on, shall we go to listen to Evans? Yes. This is the law! Chapter 1! What does oh. Millie say this time? Hi, Millie. <laughs> yeah, well, we'll just go straight to it. Millie McKenzie's been in touch. Yeah. Alright, aye. Millie has this to say about the underwater menace. She says, I like the two moving episodes. I lost focus during the telesnaps, so not really sure what was going on. How are they all in Atlantis? And how did Atlanteans eat before Zaraf turned the people into fish slaves? Where did they get the fabric from to make carpet? The music hurts. I really liked Zaroff. He saves it because it's just so crazy. I think he's a fabulous character. I don't really argue with any of that. Mm. He is definitely a fabulous character, and there are a few logical inconsistencies. Cameron's face suggests that he doesn't entirely agree with Millie. No, that's kind of my job for the evening not to. Uh, Shall we see what Jeff Waddle has to say? Because he's been in touch. Let's see. Jeff Waddle. Jeff has said, It's always good to see more Troughton and his companions, but even they can't save this NC world now. It's just dull. If this is the real Atlantis, they should have drowned it at birth. God almighty, Amdo make this stop. But Polly is always fit. And then goes on to say about Zaroff, the strangest thing that I found out later is that's him not acting, and that's his real voice. Bizarre. Is it? I haven't seen any more of Joseph First's work, so I can't possibly comment. That's one at YouTube later. That's weird. Has he got an award and he's went up and accepted it like that? <laughs> I'd like to thank everybody! And the bastard for most scenery chewed in one episode goes to... Tom Baker. You think for years and years and years, if he was doing the convention circuit, it'd be like people would just get him to say, you know, say the line, say the line, say the line. He'd be there kind of going, okay. (laughs) Nothing in the world can stop us now! Either that, he got really into it, and every time he did anything, he said that line. He's on the train and it's like, you know, the last stop before he gets home and it's like, you know, the next stop will be <laughs> Nothing in the world can stop the train now! I am going back to the first station! <laughs> and I will not even buy return tickets! Every night in there, in the bed with his wife Nothing in the world can stop me now! <laughs> All together now Jesus. Jesus Christ. <laughs> Let's get into it. Let's get into yeah. it. Dave, you're defending, so I'll let you go first. Let's have your first point for the defence, please. The first point of the defence in this story is quite a simple one. This story starts when they get out of the TARDIS, and then there's nothing involving time travel or science or sonic screwdrivers or anything till they get back in it at the very end. As much as this is a Doctor Who story, there's not a lot of science in it. There's not a lot of time travel nonsense. There's no mystical explanations. It's all a people story. There's not even any aliens. It's just they get out of the TARDIS, they have a good, fun adventure, and then they get back in the TARDIS at the end. And that's relatively unusual. You don't see that very often. A lot of the time, they need to solve some problem that only the Doctor can solve. Or there's some circumstances they could only get to because of the TARDIS. In this one, they turn up on a beach, confused about when and where they are, and then they just all wander off and get drawn into this story. And as much as it becomes a fantastical story, 
with nuclear power and fish people operations. It's actually not massively a Doctor Who story. You could take out the Doctor and put in James Bond, and it would be a Bond film. And and it's it's a good story for that. But the fact that it's the Doctor that's involved in it adds something to it. And I can see Cameron looking quizzical now. So, Mr. Um, prosecution for once in your life, go for it. <laughs> for, once in my, for once in my life. You've kind of said there that has no aliens in it, and then proceeded to describe fish people. Yeah, but that's because of operations done by humans. Robocop's not an alien. He's still no, a man. He's he's not, not, Robocop's not in this. You might have noticed. It would have been better if he had he been, probably. You know, protect <laughs> the fish. Zaroff and Ed 209. <laughs> just to get to, I, I just think it's it. You yes, it's got no alien. Yes, and you're saying you bang the nail on the head right there when you said you could remove the Doctor from this, and it would like it, it doesn't feel like a Doctor Who story because there is nothing bar Atlantis being a setting which I feel they could have made a lot more of rather than just having like you know one temple and another lab room. Um, it's got a mad scientist, there's Senate Atlantis, and there's fish people. It's pretty Doctor Who-ish. <laughs> but it's not... It, they don't do enough with that setting. It should be more. It just, as an overall story, it it has this core idea that never quite takes off throughout the four episodes. There's little glimpses of it being something, and you're like, right, this is it now. And then it's just like, mm, uh, and a few minutes later, it just kind of fizzles out, and then they're on to something else. It's another, you know, another. Though the story might go down this avenue, it really doesn't. And it, that, that it's. So that you're saying it's not predictable. No, I'm not saying it's not predictable. I'm just saying every idea it seems to have, and it has got a few going on, but it never, ever, ever gels together, and it always just feels like this wasted opportunity. What you could do, yeah, the sunken city of Atlantis. What you could do with that as part of a Doctor Who story, yes, it's a fantastic setup, but you end up with just this sort of dull, done few times before, ha, cackling mad scientist doing bad things. Very little of this has been done before. You could say that a lot of stuff that does this again after takes its cues from things like this, where you see the Shark Tank. And you see the mad scientist, a lot of the things that came after that might have taken this as inspiration. How do you do a mad, possibly ex-Nazi scientist? Well, what you want is a big white hair like Einstein had, possibly a moustache because he can't trust facial hair, and a shouting bad accent. How are and you, that's what they went with. How are you, why do you say possible ex-Nazi? Because that's what that was used as later on. If you want a mad, crazy scientist, you're probably going to go German because they're going known for science. Nineteen sixty seven and the guy's in his sixties, so you're thinking maybe ex Nazi. I have put down in the notes that there's um hella kind of weird shorthand almost racism going on here in many, many accounts, but we'll get to that in a little bit. And Dave's point about the Nazi impossible being a Nazi scientist does hold up because at the very beginning, the very first episode, we find out that they're roughly about nineteen seventy. And Polly finds the Mexico Olympic Games poster, which we can't see. Oh yeah. right, okay, I might have missed that. Bit and it's just over that because you can't <laughs> bloody telly snap. It's just I, I would say again, it, I never ever ever personally felt 
like this story got anything out of second gear. It never feels like it, it, it has, you know, it needs to have one solid core idea and then run with that and expand on that. Instead, it seems to just ditch ideas and then just kind of go, oh, well, that world won't work. Let's move on to the next thing. And it just repeats this circular process throughout the entire thing so many odd times. You're, you're right. There is quite a lot in this. It does go quite a few different directions. And I'm sorry if you couldn't keep up with that, Cameron. But it, it does have a lot yeah, of I'm blatantly <laughs> dense, Dave. I'm blatantly <laughs> dense. I'm sorry. Uh, my simple little southern Scottish mind not cultural like you guys in the central belt. Well, hold on. Hey. <laughs> I, I, I think to an extent you're right. It does have a lot of good ideas in it. And some of them oh, yeah. are very underused. It's it's the frustrating part about this is that it's it's a story that has what could have been a great, you know, has a good setup for what could have been a fantastic setting and a fantastic story. But I feel it's just wasted and what essentially, after four episodes, boils down to just a little bit of a squabble and power struggle between two people. Being, you get, is it Faust, who's the king? Kind yeah. of dude, and Zaroff. It just seems yeah. to be just like, it's a little bit of a power struggle between them two, and that's really it. And even that's kind of swept under the carpet a little bit at the end of episode four. Well, it's, it's a weird ending where they all just leave. We'll get to the ending in a little bit, I think. We need to, we'll talk about the ending a little bit more. Yeah. yeah. In the future, but as far as that goes, there is a, quite a high body count in this episode. And I'm, I'm right in thinking the 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 king's gone down at the end of episode three before we get the most I, understated, underplayed line in Doctor Who history delivered in the cliffhanger. Yeah, he gets betrayed by his guards. Yeah, I'm sure he gets. Yeah, he gets. You don't shot, see it on but camera, not, but you hear the. He's not dead. Yeah, they ha- they have very much a 1960s television way of dealing with death, in that folk are like stabbed off camera or something like that you know and it's just like kind of going and then they're not really dead they're just kind of like quite injured yeah somebody gets a spear driven through their chest with somebody's full strength then two like, yeah, yeah, so they, they get yeah. stuck right through their lungs or something like that but no they're just holding their shoulder a little bit it's a bit like um where is it maximilian in princess bride there's a difference between really dead and nearly dead yeah <laughs> And this, your friend and here, never dead. your friend here is just nearly dead. <laughs> Have fun storming Atlantis, boys! <laughs> um, yeah, anyway, by the by, just side noted in uh, one of the greatest films ever there. Yeah, can I stick to Doctor Who in the defence of the prosecution's case, please? Yeah, sorry, sorry, sorry. Yeah, don't ask me to ever prosecute the Princess Black. <laughs> um, so. Yeah, um, where were we? <laughs> yeah. the, the, the overall story, um, no, it just wastes a brilliant premise of what could have been Atlantis. I mean, I wouldn't even mind if Doctor Who went back to Atlantis now. I think it's a fantastic kind of... It's kind of got that idea similar to what they did with Pompeii and the fact that, you know, you know it kind of has to end in disaster and you know this is... The whole thing is going to get wrecked but there's a whole civilization here that will, you know, disappear and wipe out think more to the fact that they never found you know it's lost it's you know, it's not been found no one knows where it was that's the intrigue of it mm-hmm. none of that's evident here none of it well we are talking about in the confines of well, 1960s that's... television i mean nowadays they have much more scope to build atlantis well, yeah, as it were so that's what i mean it's it's yeah. it's you know i wouldn't mind if they went back now i'd be quite interested to see 
you know, Jodie Whittaker walking around Atlantis, you know, underwater and all this kind of stuff. And it's, you know, the whole place has gone bikini. bananas. <laughs> Sorry? <laughs> Let's gloss over that. <laughs> I think that's the only thing that Dave's internet has got out a very fortunate woman. <laughs> I just heard one word there. Yeah. <laughs> just like... <laughs> Yeah, sorry. Um, I, uh, yeah, I feel like I've repeated myself about three times already. No, no, you're right. It probably would be a good location to go back to almost because it is mystical. Mythical. Mm-hmm. I think for that reason they'd have trouble. They'd have to explain why it's never been seen since. Because if Atlantis existed in the seafloor somewhere, they would have found it by now. So there'd have to be a Doctor Who explanation of why they hadn't found it and why it was hidden. Which I think in the late sixties they could get away with because we hadn't scanned all of the oceans. Yeah. And again, if they went back now and found some reason that hadn't been seen, that would be going back to the Doctor Who timey wimey science explanation of things, which this doesn't rely on at all. Okay then. Uh, shall we go to the first point for the prosecution then, Cameron? We shall, and um, I'm going to go right up off the bat. We need to talk about Zaroff, and we need to talk about his. Evil plan. I was going to say his weird accent, but apparently, if you sort of said that might be his actual voice. <laughs> really? I thought we were going to have to um, do some investigating here. Yeah, yeah, the citation needed on that one, but um, no, the, the, the plan of Zaroff in this story is to raise, he's told them that he can raise Atlantis. Now, not only is he blatantly a man of science who has told what seems like quite a religious civilization in Atlantis that he can use science to raise the entire city again, we're never quite told why that would be beneficial. Why do they want Atlantis to be raised up to the the surface again? And also, it transpires that that's not really his plan. He's really just after causing a lot of pressure on the fault, blowing up the world. He actually just says, oh yeah, to blow up the world. Why is that a thing? What? Why would you blow up a planet when you're on it? What does he have to gain from that? Nothing. He's insane. What's that? Even, it's like, that is no excuse for just having a plan which gains him nothing. It's just like, I'll destroy everyone, and it's like... It kind of reminds me of, um, you know, who's the dude in Hand of Fear? That they end up taking him back to his... Oh, no. The big Eldrad. Eldrad. Eldrad must live. Um, it kind of reminded me of that, because that's kind of the upshot of his plan, is he wanted to go back somewhere that was destroyed, and therefore he's the king, but he rules over absolutely nothing, just dust. Whereas this would be, you rule over nothing but a wasteland. And I couldn't kind of get my head around... Right, you want to kind of have him as like this evil big bad who's in charge of the nukes and has taken over, you know, has not been part of the civilization but now has integrated himself into it by lying to them effectively. But the actual plan he has, it's not, I could understand, I want to insert the king and I want to rule Atlantis. Fine, that's understandable. He wants to have control. This is literally just, I want to destroy planet Earth. And then what? Then what, what would you do if you're still alive after all that, you know, essentially nuclear explosion? Also, I think it might have been inspired partially by Captain Nemo. Cool. And I think that, because Captain Nemo mm. was fed up with mankind, mm. built a submarine, wanted to live on his own under the water, and sank warships, and wanted to be left alone. 
So I think they might have taken that as inspiration and moved it on to the next level. Because he's not just fed up with mankind and the way it's behaving, he thinks mankind needs destroyed almost. And that's his plan. Stop mankind from all their fuckery. I will hold my hand up and say the only exposure I have to Captain Nemo in my life is as part of the Extraordinary League of Gentlemen. Yeah, that's what Captain Nemo does. He, he wants to be left to be part of humanity because humanity are crap, basically. Okay. And he lives under the sea, which is why I think they might have taken some of the inspiration from it. I suspect there's also a healthy dollop of ego at play here, to be known as the man who destroyed planet Earth. (laughs) Even if that takes you down with the plan. Yeah, but like... live on an infamy. I was going to say, who who would take record of that? Yeah, well, yeah, there is that. (laughs) Some little, two little little Martians sitting on a rock on Mars looking across going, oh well, they fucked that one up. It wasn't the push the button in the end, was it? Really? Was it him? Oh, I knew it was going to be him. Um, <laughs> the signs were there. The signs yeah. were all there. Look, the cackling. The nothing in the world can stop us now. Uh, yeah. So Sarah's my... definitely the guy that goes in the gun rampage and then turns the gun on himself at the end. Exactly. Yeah. That's, exactly. That, that's the character, isn't it? That's. What I mean, I don't we're, know. We're is, is, here. Do we establish if he's on the run for anyone, or is he? I mean. There's, you know, as far as fiction goes, around it on a similar kind of underwater thing, and I know it's obviously not, you know, impl- this comes well after uh, what we're, we're talking about now. It's a, it kind of reminds me a little bit of like Andrew Ryan in Bioshock, the game. There is talk at the very beginning about him being an exile for some unspecific crime that the unspecific. East wanted to turn him in, the West wanted to turn him in, and now he's going to hide in Atlantis. Possibly, not so, me. Yeah, well, for crimes undisclosed, we don't actually know okay. why he's how, there. How does he get to Atlantis? And what is his relationship with the Doctor that it seems to be that he's known for his culinary ability over everything else? I don't think it, don't think it ever gets explored. Because at the start, no. it's like the Doctor knows the name. Ah, it's Daniel. It's like, should I know this name? Has this man been featured before? Has ah. he got like a known body? But no, I was going to obviously, uh, as discussed last couple of weeks ago when we did the last show, my trout is patchy. So I was like, is this a little callback? And I was going to, I don't know, he's going get cream. Uh, onto the pills now. Um, <laughs> but they have, uh, I was a bit like, this wasn't really an era where they did this kind of thing. They didn't kind of have more writing thinking, they didn't have like, you know, characters this quickly that would suddenly come back again. Apart from your Daleks and your Cybermen, I don't think Yeah, yeah, the usual bad guys. Yeah. Outside of that, I don't think so. I don't think there's any returning characters up until this point. Not really that many occasions, as far as I'm aware, where the Doctor will meet a character who we as a viewer have never met, but they seem to know each other already. The only other one I could think of was the guy in Twin Dilemma. Aye, that's true. The mentor, yeah. How am I? Hey, look, this brand new character you've never clapped eyes on, but oh, we go way back. <laughs> remember? Do you remember the night we ended up sleeping upside down in a cave? You know, it just—I have a lot of problems with Darth as a character. In that, you know, not only is he—he he has a background which is never really explored. He seems to be known as a Michelin-starred chef to begin with not a scientist and he has a plan which is just utter pap to be honest and it's a plan which has to power this whole story but it really doesn't it just fails 
a bit annoying. Go on then, Dave. Do you want to stick up for Zaroff? Give us some positives about him. He is the quintessential mad scientist. Uh, the, uh, and as I say, this is 1967, so a lot of this hasn't been done before. So you want a mad scientist. You want big hair, shouty, lab coat, crazy ideas that don't make sense and that only he understands. And that's what you get with him. And you can say it's massively overacted, but so is most 1960s Doctor Who. This is all very much Radon projection and make yourself known on the stage and that's what all of them do yeah, so as it's... much as you can keep doing the same line that he's famous for now he was probably acting against other actors and he's not a young man and television's still a relatively new growing thing at that stage so if he wants to get more job he has to make himself stand out and I think you can't argue that he doesn't stand out he's a very memorable part of this story memorable in just looking back on him being some weird kind of stereotypical as you say possible ex-Nazi which I suppose would have been the shorthand at the time yes completely for you know this guy's evil look he's speaking German in a German accent um evil 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 um because we are not far removed from the end of the second world war no um and the age that he is would have been by the right age for that yeah so the characterization's good but it brings a lot of inference. Well, as a, so they as a, don't need to explain the character. As a character, he's certainly something, and he's played as certainly something. But as an actual, his motivations itself, not so sure. As far as performance goes, he is certainly memorable. Because can you remember any other villain from this early in the Trenton years that stands out as much as him? There's very few modern villains that stand out as much as him. I'd probably say the, I don't know, the two people from Team of the Cybermen, but even that, again, they have foreign accents. <laughs> the guys who are on the expedition. It's, it's almost like 1960s television was a different world. It's just like a little bit weird, isn't it? It's almost like they were kind of a little tiny bit racist. <laughs> and if you were watching television at that time, you've kind of grown older now, and you think, yeah, we should just have Brexit. Oh, those foreigners coming over here saying how we're this. <laughs> Yep. Is the prosecution going to hinge their case on Brexit being a direct result of the underwater menace? It's not occurred to the prosecution until this very moment, <laughs> but he might have a go. <laughs> the prosecution is now running with that line. They're now running with that line, yeah. <laughs> this is responsible for Brexit. <laughs> this story. Everyone who watched this story and finds this somehow acceptable voted for Brexit. How did I start? Recording, wanking in a grave, and now I'm standing up for Nigel Farage. Where's my life gone? Yeah, if you're doing that over Nigel Farage's grave, then you know you're in trouble. Flag in one hand, picture of the Queen in the other. <laughs> Canine tucked under your arm. Well, it's all the besties, Ibrox. Mistress. <laughs> okay. Dave, do you want to give us another point for the defence? Yes, and so I will. Good for you. <laughs> That's the the thing, one of the things I realised about this storyline that you don't get as much in modern who is the educational aspects of it. Now, some of the science in this is complete nonsense because, let's face it, you're never going to save things by overloading a reactor. But the way they teach geology and the fact that the crust is usually this thick and expanding this way, and some of that makes sense. And so they have actually put some education in here. You could learn without realising it. I can see kids watching this and the next week they're doing geology in school and they can remember that the earth has a crust that's a certain thickness and what happens when you raise pressure inside a sealed container and I can't remember the last time that modern who 
had any education in it that was actually educational. And I'm not saying that the social education isn't important, but the actual traditional educational aspects have kind of gone out of it. And this was a nice reminder that I used to have them. Well, it kind of harks back to its original commission as a kid's educational show, isn't it? Yeah. There's still going to be elements of that kicking around at this point in this juncture, obviously. And I'm um, saying it's great and they shouldn't have lost them. Is this the thing where the, they're in the lab and the doctor trying to explain what will happen and actually ends up giving a fairly comprehensive de- visual demonstration yeah. of what happens in pressurised containers. And, and it's great and it's informative and it's interesting. It's informative and enough. Um, well, we get it. If you're after a modern day equivalent, uh, Peter Capaldi had a cracking explanation of bootstrap theory at the start of one episode fairly recently. I know that's fairly not like recently. I know it's not geology, but that's um, that's a dabbling in hard science, isn't it? But that, that, that's always known as the big meat maneuver. This is the, yeah, it's physics, definitely. Yeah, but it, it's fairly advanced physics. Yeah. Whereas this was proper this is how the world is built this is what happens inside a kettle kind of basic low level but still interesting science yeah it's stuff that's not going to fly over the kids heads no yeah well you're and talking stuff to the kids will remember and understand you're, you're talking to a fella who was uh had a one-to-one conversation with sylvester mccoy where he decided to have pens and paper and set up how they did the dalek going up the stairs and remembrance <laughs> So yeah, I, I would be all for a doctor having a wee science lesson. Because <laughs> trust me, I was in my late 30s and I found it brilliant. Yeah, I mean, there is an element of that. It does seem oddly weird to suddenly break off from a story and go into an episode of How To. You know, the, the, it, is kind of, it sticks out like a sore thumb, this whole bit where it's like kind of going, well, suddenly we're going to have an explanation of all this, you know, put that there and that over there and that over there. It is weirdly placed in there <laughs> at this point. Oh, it's, it's not the smoothest of segues. No, not at all. It just suddenly seems to have been dropped in to cover a remit. Well, I quite like that it's in there. And I think it's a yeah, shame it's, it's, more it's, it. Yeah, it, it's one of those sort of quaint sort of Doctor Who things as I say that, you know, when would we say it lost that? When would, when did that, would that go with Pertwee? I don't remember much about Pertwee sitting there giving science explanations about stuff. I think a lot of it came yeah. down to which actor wanted to explain things and which one just wanted to do Aikijutsu and throw people around. Or yeah, I was going to say, there's a lot of Jaikudo going on yeah. with Pertwee. Too much of that. Why were, you, why were you two that were talking about that? I was thinking, at what point did it stop? And it's on a sort of major scale, it does begin to fizzle out with Pertwee. Mm. There's still bits of it in Tom Baker and Peter Davison's years. But I think beyond that, I mean, definitely, I can't recall any examples at all in Colin Baker or Sylvester McCoy's time. And no. ever since, there's not really yeah. been, like Dave says, the modern series, perhaps maybe intentionally or not, has drifted away from that to very much make it more sort of yeah. expansive and, you know, watchable experience for everybody that isn't necessarily a Doctor Who fan or interested in that side of things. It's trying mm. to be all things to all people. But I think, yeah, maybe, yeah, maybe Perry was the last... Yeah, you know, where that so. was a major factor. I mean, I know Tom yes. had an element. Oh, I can't remember which story it is now. He's trying to explain how the TARDIS works to Leela with the boxes. Oh, and right, that's uh, Talons of Bench Iang, isn't it? Or the interdimensional boxes. Yeah, but that's more of a kind of like, 
Gallifrey and Time Lord bollocks rather than anything actually concrete science that we know yeah. it as, yeah. really. But yeah, I mean, I can I can see what you mean, Dave. Like, certainly, you know, the the, the rough would say that yes, having little educational bits in there about scientists would be you know quite cool. Um, as I say, I think the, the nearest sort of modern day equivalent would be the Bootstrap theory with Capaldi, uh, which again I can't remember what episode that was in. And that's the but, thing I think most fans would enjoy a bit of that thrown in. And fine, you don't want to necessarily have the low level education that basic geology would have been. Hmm. But modern science fiction theory, there's loads of them you could throw in there. I mean, Rick and Morty cover the multiverse theory and stuff like that. I think Doctor Who could probably do it as well. I just imagine Jodie Whittaker just bringing out a bottle of Diet Coke and some Mentos. <laughs> <laughs> and, and you almost hope she was going to do that when it's like the first few episodes, she's rebuilding her sonic screwdriver and yeah. stuff. They were going back to science, nice one. And next thing you know, she's just calling everyone Tim Shaw. It's like, yeah, right. So you've gone from knowing science and being scientific to just taking the piss out of somebody's name. It's a missed opportunity. We could have Carol Vorderman and Gaz Top as our companions. Oof. There's a reference for the teenagers. Hey, speaking of Gaz Top, there's a thing. Right, this is going to go in the millipedia, isn't it? <laughs> who's who's Gaz Top married to? This is totally breaking off. You know, feel free to edit this bit out. But no, 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 Mrs. Is top. <laughs> no, it's not Mrs. It's a Mrs. Top. Bottom. No. <laughs> no. I only discovered this like two years ago. No, I'm not going to edit this because this is vital and important right, okay, information. Right. The I, I, so, I read yeah. an interview. I, I, I read an interview with his wife uh-huh. in this month's Retro Gamer. If that narrows it down any, it's not Violet Berlin, is it? It's Violet Berlin. Ah, okay. You're like kind of going, what? It's only like quite a, similar. A, I thought Gaz Top was gay. I don't know why. I just had it in my head that Gastop was gay, and B, like, kind of going, you're talking two kind of fairly big CITV names there. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's like kind of going, oh, they've, they've, um, they're, they're hitching. They've got two kids. Yeah. I was like, bloody hell! I didn't know that. Anyway, sorry. You <laughs> actually look her up on Wikipedia. In the picture, it's the two of them, and she looks a bit like she might be a hostage. <laughs> well, that's how for now. <laughs> when it comes, when it comes to the inevitable divorce, uh, I, I gave it a free. <laughs> There's your nice joke for the day. There's your new, oh my god! Come for Doctor Who, get bad influence jokes. Get bad influence jokes. Jesus. <laughs> right then, you slimy thoughtless. Um, Have we got anything more to add on that point? Uh, no, but the guy that played Namrud is the only guy to be in both EastEnders and Coronation <laughs> True fact. Minor roles, I'm guessing. Minor, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Okay, alright. Anyway. Did uh, it Oof, that's good. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I saw yeah. a few codes. I don't know. I don't We're now going to have to write an entry for bad influence for the Millipedia now, aren't we? <laughs> We're writing a lot of entries in the Millipedia for this yeah. episode. <laughs> anyway. By the bye, carry on. <laughs> All right. Oh, it's your turn next, then, Cam. Uh, My turn next, right? Not point for the prosecution, please. Um, Can we just point out that there are some horrendously English-centric examples of racism (laughs) against other nations here in this? Here we have Nicola. Yeah, all of a sudden the fresh people lover stands up. Independence (laughs) now. Um, We have the Irish miner who it took me a while to actually click onto this. 
Is he literally called Irish? I think he's Irish. He doesn't get a name apart from Irish. Yeah. And he's there going, Oh, yes, I have to be turned up in the morning to you. I've <laughs> got some potatoes under your car. Who got some potatoes? Potatoes on the side of the cocktail glass when you're drinking your beer. <laughs> I just thought, um, it's, it's very early on that he meets Jamie and just starts calling Jamie Jock. Yes. Yeah, that goes both ways. And I was going to say as well, and we have the wonderful line that Ben says really early doors, <laughs> episode one. With a skirt like that, they're going to think you're a bird. There's an odd thing it is Scottishness later on, isn't there? Ep- in episode three somewhere. I was going to say, is, is, does, Fraser Hines, six, but... does Fraser Hines tone his accent down as this goes on? Not this His accent thing. keeps going up and down. It keeps coming it in and out. does a bit, because obviously yeah. this, is, this is his first TARDIS journey away, isn't it? Yeah, his first two stories, and this is the Highlanders. He's trying to go for a very sort of broad, sort of Highland accent. Yeah, and it does slowly become more ratified as we go. I was going to say, by the time we get to like last episode when we were doing um, Space Pirates, it's yeah. a lot softer in that. It's, it's been smoothed out quite a lot since yeah, 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 yeah. this episode but today. Yeah. Even so, we can obviously say, "Oh, it was acceptable in the '60s. It was fine. It's just taken the mick." Because it's like it's okay. It's not racism because it's just the dirty jocks up north, and it's just like you know, it's all fine. A bit of a laugh. It's a giggle when England make these the tournaments and you don't. Oh, why don't you support England? Well, yeah. So it's just like um, no. I've just there's some eye popping examples of casual racism going on with this. Obviously, not the first time Doctor Who's been guilty of such a thing. Witness uh, Cotton. Well, yes. Uh, <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, yeah, but, that's not the yeah. only example as well. And Ben, as much as it pains me to say this, Ben's quite bad for this sort of thing. Like in, in episode one, where they get confronted by the first Atlantean they come across. Polly, you go and speak to him. You speak foreign. Yeah. Because there's only one yeah, foreign ben accent. Is a white boy. Yeah. Once, once again, this is the story that's responsible for Brexit. <laughs> The more I'm thinking about this, off the cut, the more I'm thinking this might be true. This is responsible for Brexit. All these Atlanteans want to take back control. Where do they end up? <laughs> Organise their own fishing quotas. Yep, yep, yeah. yep, yep. Fishermen's yeah. rights. Uh, right. That's how they do say you go speak to them, Polly, you speak foreign. And then Jamie pops up with his bilingualness anyway. Because he speaks them in Gaelic. Yes, he does. Well, like three words, but never mind. Yeah, but they don't answer him, so you know. <laughs> They're probably just looking, going, "He just spat at me." That's because he's Scottish and to be ignored. Yeah, yeah. to be ignored because they're the dirty jocks up north. I think the most racist time I've ever heard for Scottish people is porridge walk. Wow. Yeah. I got told to go back home once in Carlisle. That was fun. Oh, that'd be quite easy for you, don't they? Like a couple of miles of yeah, exactly. the border, aren't you? <laughs> I said, "Yeah, I'm getting my car, mate. Give us ten minutes." <laughs> Back across the border in 20, mate. You'll be fine. <laughs> Go back Carry to where on. you come from. Fine, I'll wave at you when I'm over there. Yeah. <laughs> it's Carlisle. They're just jealous because you had a home. <laughs> well, yeah, pretty much. That wasn't in Cuddock. But yeah, that's that would be my point as to why it's, uh, it's you know putting a guilty point forward. Lots of casual racism going on this, which is obviously kind of like, um, sort of like, oh, fine, acceptable in like, you know, your, the swanky London. 
Yeah, and, and I think the points of that would be two parts. One, as you say, is of the time, and also its characterization to an extent. Slave characterization. Yeah, but if you look at Ben, he's a 20-year-old white boy from Chelsea. And in the 60s, he would have no respect for foreigners because we won the war. He wouldn't trust education because he's a white boy from Chelsea. Why should he? So his response would be, yeah, you go speak to Polly. You speak foreign, like a moron. It's... So it's ten years after that. Extent. Ten years after that, Ben was eating tinned curry. <laughs> yes, and enjoying it. With thinking his 15 it was portions the... of rice. <laughs> thinking it was great. <laughs> Best thing ever. Fully by calling all of the waiting staff either Abdul or Patel. Yep. And that's just a bit of waiting for an Italian. <laughs> yep. Fuck it. No, never mind ten years later, probably ten minutes ago now, somebody in Chelsea was doing that. <laughs> it's like that um, goodness gracious me sketch going for an English. What is the blandest yeah. thing on the menu? A three, not for eight <laughs> chips. <laughs> Jammes. Jammes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, this Wikipedia, this Millipedia entry is getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Yep, pretty much. We are going to have to start writing that at some point. So, yeah. Casual racism would be my point against it. Okay. Dave, is that yeah. fair? I'm not going to stand up for casual racism. I'm just going to. It's formal as far as you're concerned. <laughs> <laughs> if it's not in a suit, I don't want to listen. Um, <laughs> No, I, I think that, as you say, it's all this time. And that's not a defence, because racism is wrong anyway. But I think the characterisation they were showing how the characters would have actually behaved. I think now if they'd done it, the characters would have been behaving that way and then be, been pulled up on it. Mm-hmm. But I think the characters would have been racist at the time. And society was much more than it is now. It's still too racist now. But I think they were probably more polite than the people in the streets would have been to foreigners and darkies and <laughs> more respecting other people. I, I think that's one of the things that comes into this story. Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, I can hear the time team imploding from here. <laughs> I think they were a bunch of racists back then in Britain and it kind of shows it. Oh, God. Pretty much. <laughs> Jesus. Oh, man. Right. Um, <coughs> that, that's derailed it. <laughs> yep. Okay. Shall, shall, we go, shall we go to the next point for the defence? <laughs> we shall. As long as it's not it's a bit not of a bit of light racism. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think the next point goes back to Cameron's last point, and it's that the companions all have strong roles in this story. As you said, Polly gets sent forward to speak to someone because it's not the TARDIS translation matrix. It is that they need to speak to people. So in almost every episode of this story, the companions are separated and doing different things, but they're all integral parts to the story. It's not like modern stories where there's like a companion that just doesn't do much except follow the doctor around and take notes. Or one where there's one companion in danger and the other one's just kind of doing exposition pieces. They all to an extent take turns leading this story forward. So you've got bits where Polly is about to be injected with a serum before turning into fish people, and that's one of the cliffhangers on its own. You've got other scenes where 
Jamie's in a fight with somebody trying to stay alive, and you've got other bits where Ben's just being a racist. So, so they all lead this story in different ways. And I think that that's kind of missing from a lot of stuff these days, where all the characters have strong, integral parts to the story. I think a lot of the time they do, here's the lead, here's the backup, and everyone else just hangs around in the background and does things. Whereas this story, you can't actually take any of them out without ruining the story. And that makes it very strong, because there's no scenes where you go, oh, it's a scene with Jamie, and I don't need to pay attention to this, because he's not involved in anything important. You actually kind of have to pay attention to what everyone's up to throughout this, until the end. And it's literally the very end, when they all come together again. Ben gets lumped together with Jamie in the mines. But then they get split up. Only because they kind of have this weird plan that they're going to go through one door and they're going to go through the other. Yep. Holly is takes about, what, five or six minutes of episode one to do the sort of stereotypical Doctor Who companion screaming in a dark cave because something attacks her, but she's not quite sure what it is because she didn't see them, even though they took this golden opportunity to tie her up. She still didn't see them. There is a lot of, like, separation into sort of almost stereotypical roles. Like, Polly ends up being, you know, at, you know, with the women folk. And, you know, Jamie and Ben end up being sort of with the, with the hardy miners who've, you know, digging out potatoes as they go. Because um, food, isn't it? Yeah, I see what you mean. They do have stuff to do, but I'd say it's just that thing of they just make stupid mistakes that then they're not really doing anything on a positive nature. They're just making absolute stupid mistakes that end up, oh, they're in peril again. Oh, here we go again, right? We need to save this person. There's a lot of kind of like kidnapping and um, incapacitation going on in this. They, they always have to be on a lower level than the Doctor, though. They can't be as good as the Doctor, so he always kind of has to be better than them. Which means that they always have to kind of make little mistakes here and there to show that they need the Doctor. So as much as they get kidnapped, they escape. Hmm. So, so they're always in trouble to an extent. But they're also not completely passive. They do try and improve their situations. They're just not as good at it as the Doctor is. It's almost like there's three levels. You've, you've got the Doctor and the evil villain at the top, and then you've got the mm-hmm. companions and the named henchmen underneath that, and then you've got everyone else at the bottom level, and they kind of have to complete the companions so they're not as smart as the Doctor or the evil baddies, but they're smarter than the fish people. And it's kind of a balancing act. That's true of almost every companion, especially in classic series anyway, that even Romana wasn't. She was billed as being as smart as the Doctor, but still got onto, you know, daft kind of cliffhangers and getting kidnapped and making stupid mistakes. With Romana, though, it was probably just naivety. She was well-educated, but she hadn't had much experience. She'd never really been off Gallifrey. Okay, well, maybe the same could be said for Jamie in this story, then. Well, he's obviously never been to Gallifrey, but... But the point was that they all fall into that category of not being quite as good as a doctor. Mm, yeah. To be like the stock sort of situation for a companion to be placed in. As Dave says, there's definitely a tiering system going on in stories. Oh, yeah, yeah aye, aye, aye. I know, yeah, 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 yeah. I know what you mean here, but it's. I'm trying to think of any sort of like 
you know, how they treat modern companions with how they were treating the three of them here and what differs between I suppose them. Um, the only direct comparison we've got is Graham, Yaz and Ryan. If we're talking in numbers in a particular story and how they're treated compared to another set of three companions back then. Mm-hmm. I mean, a lot of the, you know, a lot of the situation revolves around the fact that, you know, Ben and Polly and Jamie aren't, especially Jamie, because this is his first time in the TARDIS, aren't quite sure what goes on and how this all, you know, comes about and happens. Because um, obviously part of the job of the companion is to be essentially the audience's flow of information through each story. I don't know. Is three too many for a TARDIS team? No. I, I have as one of my notes for the defence, I think this is what the British have been looking for. This threesome. Because you've got the naivety of Jamie, who doesn't know what's going on and asks lots of questions. Mm-hmm. You've got the brains of Polly with her education and her knowledge. And you've got Ben, who's kind of in between the two, because he knows what's going on, but he's not the smartest. But he's kind of the no. brave one that pushes it forward. You go speak to them. So I think that's kind of what they were looking for when they got mm-hmm. Graham Yaz and Ryan involved. I think they were looking for that ebb and flow of characters. The same is true of Ian, Barbara and Susan as well. That like Ian's technically the brawn who does all this sort of action stuff. Barbara's the brains. Susan's the kid that gets into trouble. Yeah. So that's yeah. just the template as far as that sort of dynamic goes. Mm-hmm. And I think maybe as they start getting new actors to play the Doctor those actors decided which of those roles they wanted to add to the Doctor's role. So you may have Doctors that decide they want to do more of the intelligent explanation pieces. Other Doctors decide they want to do more of the action scenes. And because they've taken away that from the Companion, you don't need the three Companions anymore. Because the Doctor's suddenly doing one or two of those roles as well. Which is why you end up, when it comes back, with only one Companion. And we think that's normal, for, but it's the new normal. And it doesn't necessarily work as well because they invariably end up being almost a couple. And it's that either they become a couple and it's well they won't they, or they become the bickering odd couple. Whereas I think when you've got the slightly larger team of companions, it kind of spreads it out more. So it's more of a team. I mean, I quite like how Ben is, as we say, effectively the brawn. He seems quite handy with his fists. They not punch yeah. someone out at one stage in this, or am I imagining that? It's entirely likely. I'm fairly sure yeah. it's yeah. It, 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 it someone out like a guard or something. Yeah, and yeah, there's a couple. Of, there's a moment early doors where Polly works something out long before the Doctor does mm. as to where they are. And yeah, Jamie, as we know, will go on to slightly bigger things as the story goes on. Yeah, Jamie has a fight in this as well. He does. Yeah. Um, I mean, they're all likable as standalone characters. I'm just thinking in this story, it sometimes feels like they're just like, they end up getting, you know, there'll be one of them in peril at any point that just seems to be all the rest of them have to go chasing after them, which is fine for a couple of times, but it happens a hell of a lot. There's a lot of similarities between Jamie and Ben in this episode as well, but that's more a quirk of casting that, you know, Jamie was kicked on as a permanent companion just before this went into production. So there's a lot of divvying up the lines between Ben and Jamie. Mm. So they are quite similar in this. And then slowly over the next few stories, Jamie comes into more of his own sort of character that we know Jamie as. And Ben kind of reverts back to how Ben was in the previous two. So 
I've lost complete thread of where we're going. It's <laughs> <laughs> okay, we always do. Never mind. Anything about the answer that then? Uh, no, I'm I'm spent as far as that's concerned. Yep. Okay. Spent as well. All right, let's go to another point for the prosecution then, Cameron. Okay. This story effectively ends on a nuclear threat, which is rather bizarre how the final five to ten minutes of this entire story is something of a damp squib. Pardon the pun. This ending is weird. Because it seems to set up that, like, Zaroff gets, like, the longest death sequence ever just by sort of clinging to a door in a slowly filling room. There's a nuclear kind of threat that kind of never really comes to pass. You know, nothing ends up, you know, getting obliterated or anything like that. And then they just kind of leave. (laughs) They just kind of, like, go, oh, there's the TARDIS, all right, we're off again now. It's just like, there's no... Sort of final scene where they're meeting like the king or whatever, like you know, uh, uh, King Faust, and just kind of going, Well, you know, we're sorry about Atlantis, but you know, I'm sure you can rebuild your civilization somewhere else. Look, you have fish people now who will give you food. Look at them, they have forgiven you, they will stop their siege. Oh, we'll go now. Thank you, Doctor. You've been incredible. You have helped my people. And then it's just like, kind of, off we go. It's all great. Like, back in the TARDIS, and off we go the next bit. There's none of that. They literally just go, Oh, well, there's the TARDIS. Let's, 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 let's go. Oh yeah, that guy down there, this, this slowly filling water, he'll just be like, okay, he can't quite, he's just clinging on to some gates, it'll be fine. Yeah. Now, even for a telly snap, which often feels a little about what plays anyway, this felt bizarrely odd. They, they do come in at the start, and they discover Atlantis, and by the time they've left, Atlantis is flooded, radioactive walls have fallen down, and there's an overloaded nuclear reactor down there. So they just leave. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, what? Nothing to do with us, Guff. <laughs> Off we go. Just, just whistle. Don't, not, don't make eye contact. <laughs> yeah, they're the radiation fine. poison will get them. Yeah, they're just fish. Fuck them. Yeah, just fuck them. It's all fine. I'm the doctor, not Captain Birdseye. <laughs> Why did Captain Birdseye need a boatload of kids outside of international water? Because <laughs> of Brexit, that's why. Yep, because that's Brexit. why. Because Brexit. Captain Birdseye Brexiteer. You can't fiddle with kids in Europe, but you can do it in good old Blighty. Yep. So good old, away from European laws. <laughs> Imagine that. If Captain Birdseye's lawyers are listening, we are not suggesting for a moment that he fiddled with children. It was just very heavily implied by the adverts. Yeah, pretty much. You'll never get away with that these days. No, they Did they not make Captain Birdseye a kid himself in like an animated one in the latest one? I'm not up to speed on my, uh, on my Captain Birdseye adverts. In the age of I'm pretty, sure, and, I'm pretty sure that they made Captain Birdseye like a kid like for the new adverts to kind of so, get around that so he's hiding in plain sight now is that what you're I saying I think so I he's think so yeah I, I identify with his victims gaining their trust I think it's like yeah literally kind of Stockholm Syndrome just okay. kind of like you know okay. get them all like that but again boat full of children outside international laws <laughs> what's going on there <laughs> why do you need that Captain Birdseye what are you hiding in that beard sorry anyway by the by where were we um, <laughs> Doctor Who's a show isn't it um, <laughs> According to the Daily Mail last year, oh, Captain God. Birdseye is a 24-year-old woman. 
Okay. <laughs> hashtag, hashtag not my bird's eye. <laughs> There'll be no birds in my bird's eye. You can't even eat fish fingers in custard anymore. They'll just lock you up in jail and throw away the no, key. Just political, innit? They're just doing it. <laughs> just introducing the woman into my. It's ruining my childhood. Man, Wednesday night's eating the fish fingers. Ruined. Because they're just a woman. I, I, I just like to point out to the audience Cameron's not playing a character here. <laughs> He's just stopped playing a character. This is, my u- <laughs> this is my usual voice. It's my actual voice, Wikipedia. When I was at RADA doing all this. Anyway, um. So they've, they've, changed, they've changed the gender of Captain and Birdside, the lead character, and just carrying on as if nothing has happened. Captain oh, Dog Shirt is a non gender role, alright? <laughs> Captain Birdseye is gender fluid. Somebody out there at Evil Bean just gutting out his freezer right now. Yep. <laughs> Switching it off at the wall. Oh, and nothing more to do with it. Panning, like, you know, like fish fingers across the garden going, What is it all political? What have they done to my fish fingers? I just want to have my crispy pancakes in peace. <laughs> Why do things have to change? <laughs> Why do we? Uh, next thing they'll be having hash browns for gay pride. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah. <laughs> How the hell did we get into that? Oh, we we, we never know. We're just oh. glad we always arrived there. Ah, oh, man. Never mind. <laughs> yeah, probably. Go and stick up for him, he's a paedophile. <laughs> There's a title right there. <laughs> okay, I forgot anything about to add to that point, whatever they uh, No, we're just talking about the, the ending's a complete damp squib and it's just weird. There we go. Just, well, there you go, that's a summary of that. How the hell we did Captain Bubsline and all that, I don't know. Never mind. Go oh, hum. <laughs> Dave, anything to add? No, I completely agree about Captain Bubsline. <laughs> Never trusted him. Oh, but it's scampy anyway. Yeah, just, <laughs> yeah. Not if you ask me. Bloody scampy, the most wo- the most woke of foods. Yeah, Rune City as well. <laughs> yep. Right, that's three points. Yeah, each a couple of drinks and add Rune City as well. <laughs> Over the Sleeping's grave. I'm gonna fill you up like a sock puppet. Oh Jesus. On. See, I'm getting fish finger humour out of this, and then you've just darkened the tone again. <laughs> Shall we have a break? <laughs> We're probably better, eh? Let's have a break and come back for the next two points. Let's do Yes, let's do that. <laughs> I'll try and find the two points we haven't used. <laughs> yeah. He's done it, Richie! <laughs> He's done it, Richie! Yay! <laughs> I was going to make that joke in the whole thing uh, during the time lash thing. I was going to be like, "Yeah," it's like <laughs> he, he said Fine something place. about he said something about how he was like, you know, he'll probably just get straight to the point or something like that at the start, rather than waffling on. And I was like, "Don't do it, Richie!" And I was like, oh, "No, it's, no, it's it, they're, they're trying to like professionally, you know, yeah. give, don't do that." And I'm glad I, I did. I, hashtag what has happened to the magic of Richie Morgan? Yep. <laughs> Bye. <laughs>
Okay then, right Cameron, do you want to give us another point for the prosecution? I shall, I shall, and I think um, we've held it off for too long. We need to finally talk about the fish people, which is not a line I thought I'd say when I woke up this morning. <laughs> but never mind, yes, we need to talk about the fish people in the fact that there's, again, like some other things in this story, they're a wee bit of a waste. Because, okay, they, they do fall into the category of obvious Doctor Who alien costume that's like a few bits of cardboard and some cellophane wrapped together kind of thing. But there is something bizarrely freakish about them. There's something weirdly unsettling. And you can't help but feel they should have been in this maybe a wee bit more. They're also a little bit dense in the fact that they have to be told oh by the way you know, how's about if you don't like the, the, the people, the Atlanteans that you know, keep you slaves yet they rely on you for a food source how's about just not making that food source and this seems to be a startling revelation to them they go off and have the little revolution and then you never see them again apart from a really protracted, what feels like 10 minute long dance sequence in the middle of episode 3 <laughs> it all goes a little bit pans people um, so yeah, the fish people are bizarrely wasted in this for being such a core part of the Atlantis society they do seem to be used for exposition and not much else it's how can we get this system coming down slightly so we can exploit it but let's get the fish people to stop feeding them hmm and, and that's it. But as the, there's a lot of logical confusion in there. Because are the fish people a separate species? Or are they just people that have been operated on? Because getting an operation doesn't change what species you are. No, it's and it, so, it also so yeah. means that it seems to be that you're just effectively sort of altering people's lungs via medical procedures so that they can get your food for you. Yeah, which seems you put like some plastic gills on them. Yeah, which seems like they don't exactly uh, ask for patient consent forms for that. So therefore you'd think that they would have a little bit of an axe to grind against anyone who'd forced them into an operation to have their lungs modified. <laughs> and therefore would be like, well, fuck them. Mm. Um, but, but yeah, they could just go fuck them and leave. Yeah. they could just breathe underwater and there's plenty of food. Swim away, you know, somewhere else. You know what I mean? Regardless of the fact that the pressure would probably kill them, but you know. Um, no, I think it's it for it. Obviously, it's them costume designs that wouldn't hold up well on a color uh, screening. Uh, you know, they get away with it in you know very much standard definition black and white Doctor Who. Well, they're just a little yeah. bit of a waste. When they were on screen, there was like, something weirdly yeah. mesmerising about them, but there's nothing ever come of it. I, I don't know much about the production of this, but it wouldn't surprise me if the costumes themselves didn't hold up that well anyway. And that's why they maybe weren't in more scenes. Possibly, yeah. Because if, if you've got a Doctor Who fish people thing, and then they're swimming for ten minutes, maybe three takes because it's on film, so you have to do it quick. Mm -hmm. Things might start falling a bit. As colours start to run. It just looks a bit meh. There's a strange sort of gulf between the two sets of fish people costumes as well. I mean, on one hand, you've got the really sort of intricate one with the sort of scales, that you're clear about, separate discs, you know, over the head, and the eye makeup and the goggles and then you've got some boy in a body stocking with a couple of like fins stuck to his back yeah that's it's like there's nothing yeah. in between it's like we've used all the money and what we've got uh, yeah yeah that'll do maybe maybe his operation just got a bit disturbed halfway through and they kind of thought <laughs> fuck it pub 
<laughs> if there is a pub in Atlantis. We've not got enough time to get rid of Leotard, so we'll just leave him. No, nah, exactly. Like him, yeah. Walking into the pub. Can you mind to be in some white bait, please? Oh, sorry. <laughs> These are meant to be like survivors of shipwrecks who've been operated on. Hmm. And I don't know how making them able to swim underwater also means they lose all of their language skills and ability to speak, even when they're out of the water. Hmm. I'm not sure. They just never seem to get explained as to what they're yeah. kind of... It has quite like, a tight story. It feels like they've obviously just kind of gone, we need some aliens. Uh, yeah, they'll do fish. In its defence, this is a very tight, very quick story. There's quite a lot happens in four episodes. You can see mm. this being stretched out to six. I don't think it would have caved at six. Oh, I might have struggled, but you can see them doing it. It just about makes four. It would cave at six. You could have another couple of scenes down the mine while they overhear a plan in the escape, and a couple of scenes with the fish people. A slower descent into madness for Dr. Zoroff. So I'll have you can see it being six. I think the problem with this being four is that they do rush through a lot of things. But that's what we dealt with last time when we done the Space Pirates, is that every individual episode seems to centre on one particular event and expand on that. Yeah. But you, you could see them doing here, like Dave says. So there is scope for them just to stretch these elements out. I think it would give it more of a sense of time passing as well. And it might just be because I watched all of it in one sitting this afternoon. But Ooh. it felt relatively quick. Because you see the fresh people having, finding out that maybe they should go on strike for these people. And they go on strike. And then like 10 minutes later, the workers are leaving the lab looking for food. Which is just weird. It's like, what? what? We're not going to get any lunch today. Right, fuck it. Tools down, lads. Let's go look for some food. It just felt very, let's go find some. But as I say, that might be because I watched all four in one thing today. There's a possibility. Why did you do that to yourself, Dave? Why did you do that to yourself? Laziness, partially. But also, I like to come into this with it all fresh in my head. And when it's something like Tally Snaps, watching it two or three times for the prep becomes very painful. Yeah. Yeah. So I kind of watch it once on the day and take my notes and then fill my notes out a bit in the afternoon. Have you been watching the stories twice all the way through this? No, not all of them. Some mm-hmm. I have. Okay. Because we are sometimes three, four weeks between recordings sometimes, if we pick an episode that I have not seen for a while, then I'll watch it the next couple of days and let it percolate in my brain. And then mm. before we record, I'll watch it again kind of more critically. Yeah. See what I'm looking out for. But the telly snaps, I wouldn't do that because it's just so tiring to watch them sometimes. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Dave. Do you want to give us your final point for the defence, eh? This might be the lightest point the defence will ever make. <laughs> but I do think you'll like this one. The scene where the Doctor is hiding out and Jamie is covering for him. And they say, have you seen a man that looks unusual? And Jamie says, black coat, bow tie, baggy trousers, I've seen him. <laughs> and my first thought was, that's pure fucking two-tone. <laughs> the, the Doctor is in his two-tone. That's what it is. Uh, yes. He could have been a founding member of Madness. <laughs> Just needs support by part, doesn't he? Yeah. That's it. And, yep. and that's it. That's my final point for the defence. The Doctor is in the two-tone. <laughs> that, plus the constant use of random fucking instrumentation throughout this, playing in the corner, <laughs> banging his cymbals. He's doing anything to get on a writing credit for the music. Okay, I, I, I know we joke about giving big finish ideas, but I'm going to note this one down when he goes back to Coventry in 1979. <laughs> We're going to have the Doctor and the Selector. 
maybe have the specials coming in, you know, so they save some car factories from being shut down. Everybody goes home happy. There's a box set in it. I've, there's a box set in anything if you listen to Big Finish. Listen yeah. to all of Big never. Finish. No, yeah. you can't. No, you can't. <laughs> like it, can. it ever, it's ever expanding at an increasing rate day by day. <laughs> Consuming all before it. End it's it now. Out. See, yeah. that's the thing. We're talking about crypto coiner there, and everyone's upset about the amount of power that crypto mining is using. The next target is going to be Big Finish. The carbon footprint Big Finish must be massive right now. <laughs> Big Finish. Killing Chris the planet. Eccleston, Christopher Eccleston outside eating his lunch in his car with the engine, <laughs> engine still running just in case. I've given up about the pack. <laughs> Sod it. We'll do it once. I've been with the polluters now. <laughs> the lunches are amazing. <laughs> okay. Right. Cameron, do you want to give us one more to wrap it up? Yeah, I probably will do. Um... There's a lot in that's made in this entire story about the um, different sides of Atlantis. One side, obviously, being science and uh, you know medical procedures and uh, all that kind of jazz. The other side, you know, traditional and very religious based um, in the temple. The religious part of it only really seems to be there at the start to have the whole sort of thing of oh look at these strange people with their weird headdresses on. Look at them speaking foreign. And then it's only with the, like the last ten minutes where suddenly everything comes down to Amdo, like everything comes down to Amdo. Um, Christopher Biggins is a big sort of worshipper <laughs> of Amdo. I think I think it must be because it sounds a hell of a lot like him, and it just feels like again another opportunity wasted in the fact that this could have been a grand battle between you know your your your, your, your science and religion and playing those off each other and it just feels like they kind of like don't really bother with that the science bit's fine that's important that's what the doctor is and then it gets to the um religious bit oh yeah we need to have like 10 minutes of that where they're all you know bowing and praying but apart from that it won't really matter really to be honest with you never really seems to be any kind of conflict it all just seems to be oh there's one and then there's the other and that's it again it's like the usual thing with my problem with this story it has ideas, and it's just very, very quick to give up on them. And then just get bored and move on to something else, because it doesn't settle on one identity. Yeah, there, there is the opening the opening episode where literally the scientist saves the Doctor and the companions from the religion people, takes mm-hmm. them away, and then it flips, and the religious people save the Doctor and the companions from the scientists. And then by the end of it, they're just, yeah, science is a bit meh, isn't it? Yeah, but what about religion? Yeah, it's also a bit meh. Ah, well, back to the TARDIS. And it, it, it is, as you say, possibly a missed opportunity. Mm-hmm. But they do very well to not say that either science is far better than religion or religion is far better than science. Because you can see it being disparaging of these crazy, funny foreign people and their religions with their headdresses. Yeah. Which would have been in keeping with the racism of its time. Pretty much, yeah. And we've seen in Doctor Who where they have all of the black people are wearing headdresses and skirts because they're just strange and foreign. And they kind of stay away from this because even they show the religious people as having intelligence and critical thought. Whereas the scientist by the end has no critical thought and no understanding of the world. So I think as much as they don't really pick a side, it's nice that they show that you don't have to pick a side. Mm. And you can have scientific and religious beliefs. 
I'm going to go. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I was expecting a comeback there, but no. Okay, right. Well, it's just oh. like, I, I can't really add anything to that apart from, you know, I, I just feel it's a complete waste of an opportunity. Nothing ever really seems to come of it. Okay. Well, but, but on that then, shall we begin to sum it up? Uh, Cameron, do you want to give you a final plea to the audience of why they should find the underworld when it's guilty of crimes against Doctor Who? I mean, with the, it's, I'm going to, I'm, I'm going back to it again. It feels like it, it could have been so much more. The underwater menace. It's a story that ends up kind of, no pun intended, drifting along. Uh, uh, uh. <laughs> and uh, you know, it's with the, with the rest of the driftwood. Um, it has characters which are memorable, but whose motivations seem confused. It has an ending which seems to build up and build up but ends up having absolutely no payoff to it to the point where the TARDIS crew just walk off, really. And that's it. It has some quite crass examples of 1960s acceptable racism. Um, it has an entire species of people which are introduced, do one thing and nothing more. I know Dave said that this would have well been a six-parter, but I mean, thank God it's not, because it just it probably would have created even more ideas and just given up on them after a few minutes. It's just a for just absolute disappointment and absolute just not even expanding on what it promises to do so at the start. It's guilty of crimes against Doctor Who. Okay, then, Dave, do you want to sum up the defence then? I think I agree with Summer Cameron's points. This is full of ideas. It's got lots of stuff in it. A lot of it isn't necessarily used as well as it could be, but yeah, great ideas, really memorable characters. Unlike a lot of modern stuff, it's got good educational aspects in it. Cameron says there's no payoff for the final scenes. We literally see somebody drown, and it's the evil scientist, killed by his own hubris and design. In the slowest possible way. Pacing isn't up to us, but you, you see the big bad actually die. It's not that you get arrested, he actually dies. Uh, the companions in this have all got strong roles. We see side characters coming in with fully rounded characters and motivations. We understand why the head of the religious types doesn't like the head of the science division. We understand why the ruler of the Atlantis is trying to get both sides to work together because he wants his, plant, his people back on the surface. The best reason that this isn't Gilead Crimes against Doctor Who, you've got Jamie, Ben, Polly, and the Sky Doctor. This is it. <laughs> this is the best Doctor stuff. This is what this is what people want from their Doctor Who. It was designed originally to be educational and entertaining. And this is educational and entertaining. So that's why I think it's not Gilead Crimes against Doctor Who. All right, then. Two very strong cases. Shall we go to the verdict then? That's what we usually do. Hear ye! Hear ye! The court's in session. Now, here come the judge. Here come the judge. Okay, right. Well, we'll start by picking up on points that you both raised throughout the, uh, of course, the episode like I normally do. Uh, Dave, you're right. There's a very, very strong Bond film uh, vibe to this. It's only one small stage away from very, you know, sharks underneath a sliding floor, which would fit in with the overall theme of what's going on here. Uh, Zaroff. Hadn't thought about him being inspired by Captain Nemo. So that's kind of fleshed out the character a little bit for me. I hadn't thought of that before. 
bizarre off strange. I mean, like I hinted at earlier on, he's memorable, but maybe not necessarily for the right reasons. He's very, very dialed up. But, you know, you, you can't say he's been particularly hammy, because that's the character, that's the way it's written, that's how he's supposed to behave. He's supposed to be unhinged. He's supposed to be a loose cannon, so... I can't really criticise the performance. Uh, a lot of it, however, is overacted, but that's 1960s Doctor Who, really. I mean, it's very stagey acting. People almost get in a competitive sort of acting style against each other to get the loudest, and the one that projects the most and stands out most on the small screen. It doesn't really sort of feel out of place in this episode, though, because ev- almost everybody's doing it. Uh, the companions, I don't... I can see your point about them all having defined roles. Jamie certainly does, which is quite a surprise considering that it's a very late addition to the script. And, you know, it being a very, very early story for him, he kind of stands out. You can see the sort of core of Jamie as a character, what we now know to be developing in a season one that's kind of looking for ways out and trying to fill the guards and looking after Polly and, you know, consoling her. Polly doesn't come across as integral, sadly. She kind of just dissolves into a kind of stock 60s screaming lassie companion. And she's so much more than that, really. I think the problem is that Jeffrey Orm, who wrote this, never wrote for Doctor Who before this and never wrote for it again. And there's a, there's a reason that... I'll, I'll come to that. I'll come to that in my summing up. You're right about the education, no? It's done with a light touch. They've got the things with the pressure container and geology. It kind of sticks through to the Doctor Who's origins. It's not being heavy-handed with it. And there's no attempt to make an audience pick a side between science and religion. Throughout the story, though, it's a very, very sort of ham-fisted attempt to base that as a science versus a religion story, and I don't think it really comes off. Cameron, you're right about Atlantis being, used, uh, being underused. I mean, you've got this opportunity to have a mythical setting in Doctor Who. The biggest sandbox you can have. Shall we use it? Nah, let's just do it. It's it's a background thing. Zaroff's kind of not really explored in terms of his background. We don't know what the cut of his jib is. We just know that he's a great chef and he's also mental. Fish people are well designed but underused. You're right about them maybe being shoehorned into be like the monster of the week. There's a lot of casual racism going on here, but you know, it is 1960s Doctor Who. You know, look at the Celestial Toymaker. There's worse examples of it in there. Episode four, just episode four, though, you're right. It is very, very slow. And this is what goes somebody torpedoing up for me. It's remarkably low energy acting for events that are very high stakes. The whole thing feels slow paced. Not that the first few episodes are high octane by any means, but when you get there, there's a lot of ambling about and oh, this nuclear actor might go off. Well, yeah, fine, should we go up this tunnel? Uh, it's, it is my buddy. Uh, will we save him? No, we'll just watch him drown for 10 minutes. It's fine. I need a bugger off in the TARDIS at the end. There are things to like in the underwater menace. Not helped by having two episodes of telly snaps where nothing really happens. But it's a weak story. There's not enough to pull it into the side of not guilty. So I think, on balance, I'm going to have to say it's guilty of crimes against Doctor Who. There are good elements, but nowhere enough to save it. I'm sorry, guilty. Huzzah! And that hurts me. As it, like I said last week, it hurts me to condemn Patrick Trouton's story with Ben and Polly in it. <laughs> it's not something I like to do, but it's something I have to do. Well, when you messaged uh, the uh, the WhatsApp uh, group we've got going on to organise these things, and you were saying, you know, 
the court will be uh, not accepting any evidence against Ben and Polly. I was a bit like, all oh, right, okay. <laughs> that was before I'd actually watched this, I'll be honest. Oh, I see, I see. Well, uh, it's good to I, see. I stand by it. Ben does have nice moments. Jamie is... Jamie. Uh, Jamie is Jamie. You, know, you can't go wrong with Jamie. Paul is very underserved by this episode. Almost offensively so. So that goes that goes some way to my verdict. But yeah, the story's not strong enough. Simple as that. I thought Simple I might have life. saved it by mentioning this Ben and Polly and Jamie and a scared doctor. I thought I might have got your voice just on that. <laughs> I, I yeah, saw I through that. that, David Cummings. I saw through that. I see you try to influence the judge. <laughs> I mean, we can't be too harsh on the underwater means because it was something that was rejected initially and then drafted back into Series 4 at the last minute when another script fell through. So it was always kind of up against it. It was never really good enough to be considered for Doctor Who initially. And, you know, it shows. So it's weak, good elements, but not enough to save it. But it's not down to what I think, is it? No, no. As always... As oh, you never is. As always, it's down to you, the listener. So once this episode goes out for seven days, we will put a poll up on our Twitter account. That's at the Polis Box. You get to decide whether the, ultra, or the underwater menace is guilty or not guilty of crimes against Doctor Who, and we'll reveal the results in the next episode. Time for the correct phrase. Talking of the next episode, it's time for the envelopes of justice. Yay! Everyone's favourite part of the show. You've sat for an hour and 20 minutes of this just to get to your favourite bits. Just to get to this end of it. <laughs> fast forward to the end and it goes, oh, they're doing horns and I'm on. Here we go. I don't know what we're doing. I, I, I'd like to think our listeners don't do that. They suffer just like we suffer. Every Although if we draw horns and I'm on now, it's going to look really sad. <laughs> Dave, you won the vote last time round, so you get to call stop on the envelopes of justice. I will run my finger back and forth along the envelopes at any point, tell me to stop, and what we draw is what we do in the next episode. I am now fingering the box. Stop. Okay. I will throw the envelope. And that's the thing, right? And it's face down. We, we don't get to see you pulling the envelope out of the box on camera. I have genuinely taken he it out. He says stop, and then he puts it away, <laughs> and then he comes up with the envelope. Oh, look, the magical envelope. Look, I've taken the envelope out of the box, I've placed it face down on the desk, so I don't know what we've got have in front of us. I have no idea. Are you accusing the yeah. judge of skullduggery in this? This is contempt oh, of court. I think that probably falls into this. You're having to go to the does. judge. Calling into question my integrity, David Cummings. I wasn't calling into question your integrity. Oh, I was hearing out the possibility of corruption. I wasn't accusing I, you of anything. I hope this is a Russell T. Davis episode and you end up having to defend Fearer. Ah, wouldn't that be a poetry? <laughs> that would be just desserts for you, Mr. Cummings. Just desserts. Right, Dave, you get to decide... Uh, oh, sorry, Cameron, actually. You get to decide whether Dave prosecutes the defence what comes out of here. So, have we got a virtual coin ready? Uh, Anyone? Uh, uh, um, Come on, guys, we've been doing this for three weeks now. <laughs> I know. Um, it's all in the preparation in the police box. Dave has one on his phone, does he know? No, he doesn't. Dave keeps his phone clean, <laughs> so he deleted them all. <laughs> all the pictures at Liz Slayton's gravesite. Deleted. Uh, Gone forever. I do, I do have coins. The nearest I have is uh, a Pokemon coin from the trading card game. Back in one. <laughs> Oh no, Dave's got a proper coin. Twenty-five Dominican pesos. There we go. That is good enough for us. We're going to go on the pace of, <laughs> we're, 
a head on one side, and uh, so yes, 2005. Okay. What am I for? Well, maybe some listening. <laughs> I thought I'd leave that up in the air long enough for one of you two to say it. That's okay. It wasn't uh, even yeah. me. <laughs> well, in effect, you're tossing to decide what you're going to be doing. So, well, you've got to be prosecuting or defending this story. So, what we need to have is Cameron, do you want to call it? Is it going to be heads or tails? Uh, or right. Heads. He did defense. Okay. Uh, tails, he prosecutes. See the camera on that? Is the crest. So that's tails. Tails. And, and that's, that's tails. Just to tails. prove it, there's the head on the other side. Okay. So you're going to Hold on the front of the camera so there's no corruption involved. <laughs> so Dave's prosecuting whatever comes out. Okay. Right then. Don't be fear her. Please. <laughs> I'd take another telly snap over fear her. <laughs> Imagine a telly snap all fear her. Oh. Hugh Edwards' face was solitary to tear trickling down yeah, just... in stop-frame animation. Yep. Right, so... The subtitle Olympic Bollocks just goes across the screen. So, Dave, you will Flag be prosecuting... jingoism. <laughs> let's, let's find out what we've got. Episode 47 of The Fullest Box, we will be doing something from the Russell T. Davis era of Doctor Who. Oh, Dave, you will be prosecuting in our next episode and Cameron will be defending Oh please Oh please, let it be Dave, you will be prosecuting Planet of the Dead So it's nay fever You're off the hook, Phillips You're off the hook Which one's Planet of the Dead? Planet of the Dead is the first of the specials here of David Tennant's uh, final season So it was on a minute Easter It's the one with the London bus that goes through a wormhole, ends up in the desert. The one with Michelle Ryan as the companion. I, was, I think you, you just had to say the one with Michelle Ryan in tight leathers. Yeah. And I think I was there. <laughs> I really circled around that one. <laughs> I think I've just found Cameron's first point to the defence. All I these points to the defence. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so there we go. That's a standalone episode. Uh, feature length one, though. I think it's about 65 minutes long. So, you know. It's, it's a wee while. It's not anywhere near four telly snaps worth. But yeah. it's a wee while, yeah. But yeah. The main thing is, it's not telesnaps. No, it's not telesnaps. It moves with grace. And that's just Michelle Ryan. <laughs> um, yes. Nice. I, I can assume you're happy about having to defend this thing, Cameron. I'll defend Michelle Ryan at the end of the earth. <laughs> Dave, happy having, to... <laughs> happy having to prosecute that one then, Dave? Yeah, I can do that. Definitely. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Just, another noise. He says. Yeah. He says yeah. convincingly. Yeah. Yeah. I'm really reminding myself of it. Yes. <laughs> it does have many flaws. Get on your Wikipedia. You'll find out. Okay, then. So that's going to be episode 47 of the Police Box. Uh, Dave will be prosecuting Planet of the Dead. Cameron will be defending it. Uh, like I said, we're going to put up a poll on Twitter for this episode so you can decide whether uh, the underwater men is guilty or not guilty of crimes against Doctor Who. Float on that reveal in the next episode, and we'll see you. Probably in a few weeks' time, because I'm off on my holidays. Lee's off to uh, live in a tent in some far-flung place where there's no Wi-Fi. <laughs> yeah. I'm off up to the highlands to find Jamie and his magical magic torch. Magical let's torch. Not, yeah, let, that's let's it. not like the Wicker Man, like the gifts I was sending you. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's I not like that. It. I might make the Wicker it Man's where Cameron lives. <laughs> yeah.
I might make it back. I might not. I might just be you two for the next episode. The relief of the audience. Might just be, you know, replacing you with like a rabbit in a box. <laughs> and they're going, oh no, Lee's not dead. His spirit is living on. His spirit gets back to nature. That's Irish. Have a bag of potatoes. <laughs> Give us a rabbit. His spirit is now a bag of potatoes. That can blow up your car in the right circumstances. This has been episode 46 of the highly racist police box. I've been Lee. I've been Dave. And I've been Cameron. And if not been cancelled, we'll see you next time. Good night, everybody. Good night. Bye. <laughs> <laughs>